Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week's Crypto Unstacked features Mustafa Yilhem, Vice President of Global Business Development at Bishin Global. Bishin is one of the earliest offline crypto wallet businesses and operates one of the largest mining operations. Recently, they announced the formation of a $66 million fund of funds investing solely in crypto quant funds. In this episode, Mustafa and I chat about mining economics within the context of geography, variables he looks for when researching mining hotspots and sourcing electricity, his thoughts on Binance's new mining pool, and why he thinks mining is decentralizing faster than he anticipated. Mustafa offers his Asia mining perspective, and it's a fun one. Thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Mustafa. Crypto Unstacked. Welcome. It's great to have you join me on the pod. Hey, Leslie. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you. We're going to cover a lot today. But first, I would love to get to know more about yourself and the history behind Bixin. Yeah, sure. Again, thanks for having me here. And uh, regarding to myself, I started my crypto journey in 2013 during my college years. I first heard about Bitcoin actually in my college dorm. And, and so after that, you know, I've been really studying a lot of Bitcoin crypto related stuff and also started to expand my network. Um, in 2017, I actually became the first employee of Hobby Global in the United States. And uh, I was also director of global business development at Hobby. In 2018, I joined Amber Group as a venture partner. And uh, I still keep very good relationship with uh, everyone at Amber. Um, later years, in like uh, toward the end of 2018, I joined full-time at Bixing. So I know Bixin is one of the earliest and most popular mining operators in China. Bixin's founder started mining in 2009, I believe, and founded the company in 2014. Could you share more about the different business lines that Bixin operates? Sure. Uh, with Bixin, we have two main business focuses. Uh, one of them is Bixin Wallet, and uh, the other one is Bixin Finance. We currently uh, we're probably one of the largest crypto off-chain wallet in Asia. On our PC wallet, we have services such as OTC trading, lending, payment, trading, and cloud mining as part of its ecosystem. On our PC finance, uh, we maintain and develop PC mining and fund of funds. We currently manage around 300 megawatt per hour, and we are also an early investor in Watts Miner, which is one of the largest mining manufacturers. 
Uh, we also recently announced an establishment of the Fonda Fund, uh, which is currently around 6,600 BTC, roughly around $66 million. It is completely BTC denominated, and we will be investing in crypto quant funds around the world. Great. Thanks for the high-level overview there. We were chatting about this actually before the recording about Bixing's mindset toward Bitcoin, which I found super interesting, and how that has shaped the way the company has chosen to build out its business. So could you talk more about that? Yeah, so Bixing has always been, and I think will always be a true believer in Bitcoin. We have always been a supporter of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Even during our internal meetings, uh, when we discuss potential investment opportunities into uh, mining farms or into crypto quant funds, we're always talking in terms of BTC-denominated terms. Part of the reason why we published our quant fund was also because, uh, you know, we, we hope the fund of funds can contribute to better global liquidity structure for Bitcoin ecosystem. And I have a funny story to share here, which is recently during one of our due diligence call with uh, quant fund managers, he accidentally shared his screen where he was taking notes. And he couldn't believe that, you know, we are 100% BTC denominated uh, with almost $66 million Bitcoin exposure. On his note, he actually wrote like, our strategy, unfortunately, doesn't fit these people because they have religious belief toward Bitcoin. That, I think, really shows how much we really truly believe in Bitcoin and uh, its long-term potential. This actually plays into my next question, which is wanting to dive deeper into your fund of funds. Coindesk published an article a few days ago about this $66 million honeypot. Um, and, and it's really exciting news because we haven't seen this from anyone in quite a while, at least not publicly. And it's bullish news for the industry. You know, Suzu from Three Arrows Capital commented on Twitter saying that the BTC denominated funds are crucial for the long term growth of liquidity and volume in the markets. Could you talk more about the fund's thesis, fund structure and where you're looking to allocate funds? Sure. The fund of fund currently manage around 6,600 Bitcoin and it is 100% BTC denominated. Uh, we will only invest in BTC-denominated funds, and obviously our goal is hoping to increase our BTC holding. The fund is supported entirely by BCN's prop capital, and we currently don't accept any outside investment or plan to do so in any time near future. The fund is currently run more like a family business with aim to invest in global quant funds with market-neutral trading strategies, mostly based on arbitrage high-frequency liquidity provision. We will also look closely at CTA trends. And what are some things you look for when you're starting the due diligence process? What are some of the variables that need to tick the box before Bixin actually allocates funds? Right. There are a few things we look for. The first one is we do a lot of due diligence background check on the people who are running the fund. Uh, we always do reference checks. And uh, we also want to make sure the fund managers can perform consistently through different market cycles. And that we want to make sure they are capable of deploying multi-strategy, have really good uh, research and development abilities. And we always take a really good look also at their, their risk management capabilities. So those are probably the most uh, main factors we look at. Great. I want to turn the spotlight now to mining. I know you have a ton of insights, Mustafa, to share, but let's start with the basics. Where does Bixin have 
its mining facilities. For those less familiar with popular regions for setting up mining facilities, could you let us know where some of the hotspots are? Bixin currently have majority of our mining facilities in China, and we also have some uh, in Central Asia. I think a lot of people have misconception toward mining and thinking that we're wasting energy. But the truth is, with mining, a lot of times we're using surplus energy or wasted energy. And that is the type of energy that we look for around the globe when, when we try to source mining farm. One, it's more environmentally friendly, but two, it's also cheaper. So the places we look at include Russia, Central Asia, Canada, United States. And I think those are probably currently the most popular mining regions. Currently, we don't have much investment in the West for mainly two reasons. Number one, the operational cost of mining in the West is pretty high. It's probably much higher when you compare it to places like Central Asia or China. Two, the current global economy, instability of policies and uh, like economic and also, you know, with the recent COVID-19, I think it made a lot of miners in China very cautious when they want to go abroad to invest in mining firms. Yeah. And when we talk about mining, we also have to cover other relevant topics as well, such as geography and geopolitics as it relates to energy and mining. And before this, you mentioned that it's important to consider the macro environment when mining across geosections. And so continuing on this thread, what impact has the recent global health crisis had on the logistics of mining? How do you think miners on the West were impacted differently from miners in the East, specifically China? Yeah, so I, I think when you speak about like entire industry, I don't think COVID-19 have a very long-term effect to it. But in the short term, it definitely caused a lot of miners around the world a great inconvenience. For example, I think supply chain was largely affected, and that's mainly due to the restriction and stay-home orders around the world. Our workers couldn't change shift, or if some machines were broken, we couldn't send technicians or supplies to fix them. And I think our overseas operation were also hit hard. We couldn't send employees abroad or have our overseas employees come back to China. All original plans for overseas expansion also paused this year due to COVID-19. And I think people in the vast probably faced similar situation from what we heard. After all, you know, mining is probably not considered an essential business in most places. Um, <laughs> right. And that resulted probably in a lot of miners cutting their employees, uh, cutting their loss by, you know, reducing their employees' headcount or selling their Bitcoin or leveraging more financial tools to hedge against their risk. Yeah. And mining is a high maintenance job. And that point that you mentioned about not being able to keep up to date on mining farm maintenance must have been a very big problem, especially for the smaller operations. Yeah, I think regardless of your size, doesn't matter you're a bigger or smaller farm, the stay-at-home uh, order and the travel restriction definitely impacted all of us. The difference here is that larger miners like us probably have a bit more reserve uh, in our capital. So we are able to go through this uncertain and the tough times versus the smaller miners with less capital reserve. Probably some of them might not even recover from this crisis. But I think that applies to any other industry, not just mining. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we end up in a massive global recession, how do you think this will affect mining profitability? Yeah, I think currently Bitcoin is a great hedge against local risk events. For example, 
During the 2017 North Korea nuclear crisis, South Korea Bitcoin price went up 30% compared to the rest of the market. And I think similar story have happened in India, Zimbabwe, and even in Cyprus. But when you look at COVID-19, it's a risk event that is on a global scale. And uh, we started to see a de-risking from financial asset on global level. So when the price was first hit, I don't think it was surprising that Bitcoin price also went down. After all, owning a Bitcoin can't really cure COVID-19. I think the true power of Bitcoin will be shown after COVID-19 is over when we see an inflation on global scale people will most likely start to run to Bitcoin to hedge against their risk. Its limited supply, security, and global liquidity features could really prove to be a potential true haven for many people. Yeah, Paul Taylor Jones went on CNBC this past week, and he said something that was really interesting, saying that every day that goes by and BTC survives, trust in it will go up. I mean, how bullish is that? Um, And he says, you know, on the other hand, If you own cash in the world today, you know your central bank has an avowed goal of depreciating its value by 2% a year. So you have, in essence, a wasting asset in your hands. So he is sort of labeling uh, this period of time as the great monetary inflation, GMI, which I think is a pretty apt way to kind of characterize this period of time. And that's why a lot of people are looking to Bitcoin as a fiat alternative. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think this is really a scenario where a lot of hardcore Bitcoin believers have been waiting for. So let's talk about mining economics now within the context of geography, which you alluded to a little bit earlier. And historically, mining has been concentrated in China, it seems like anywhere between 60 to 70 percent of hash rate distribution is within China. What markets are you paying attention to in addition to China right now? When we are looking at uh, different markets to source electricity, we are mostly looking at places with electricity surplus or waste energy. China has a lot of electricity surplus during the summer months, especially in Sichuan region. It's always producing at electricity surplus during the rainy season. So the price of electricity is much cheaper. In addition, labor costs, operational costs, and logistic costs are also cheaper for us in China. But we have been paying very close attention to overseas markets. For example, we have already made good amount of investments in Central Asia and have been paying very close attention to a North American market. In the United States, a miner can legally stay off-grid which is really rare compared to some countries like Russia. And here in the U.S., we also see a lot of utilization of uh, natural gas, old alumni factories, and the associated gas, which is a form of flare gas that comes out from oil drilling. And these are all factors that are helping to reduce cost of electricity down to two to three cents in North America. But speaking at a macro level, the most influential factor that we as a you know, large-scale Asia miner haven't made investment in the U.S. is still due to logistic complications, compliance, and operational costs. I think in addition to all that, the trade war currently between U.S. and China and the political economical instability has also caused a lot of hesitation to Chinese miners to make large-scale infrastructure investment here. 
Yeah, and you also mentioned Russia. Why is China more competitive in a place like Russia? I've heard a few regions are hotspots for mining as they've kind of turned these old factories into now Bitcoin mining facilities. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Actually, we spent, I would say, almost a year on and off in Russia trying to study and uh, do research on the local market. I think part of the huge reason Russia is such an attractive country for Bitcoin mining is, again, is because Russia has a lot of electricity surplus. And that's mainly due to during the Soviet Union time, they built a lot of infrastructure for energy, especially in Siberia, in Irkutsk region. The retail price of electricity is like very cheap. And uh, even locally, we heard jokes, but might be true that people in Siberia, they use Bitcoin mining machine to heat up their house during the winter time. Uh, recently, we see that mining industry in Russia is also booming. But considering all factors, again, such as logistic compliance and price, currently China is still more attractive to most miners. And also something worth really noting is Russia have a pretty strict uh, grid system. So that means that in, in places like Irkutsk, where electricity is very cheap, the average price for electricity is still around $0.04. Cents. When you go on a grid system, that basically means any electricity that is produced over certain capacity have to go on the grid system. And that is a way to regulate the electricity price. And of course, uh, we, we truly believe that Russia have a huge potential in Bitcoin mining in the future. Especially recently, we have heard some Bitcoin miners in Russia started to utilize this supply and demand system, which means basically, according to system operator, you can cut off the electricity at the peak uh, usage time which will greatly reduce your average electricity cost. Also, Russia is a huge country for oil drilling, and uh, I think associated gas and flare gas mining could also be a huge potential in Russia in, in long term. So short term, we still find China more attractive, but long term, we're definitely paying attention to Russia or North America or other regions. And a lot of our listeners are in North America. And so I think it would be helpful to give a comparison between Asia and the U.S. as it relates to electricity and other variable costs. To be honest, like for now, we haven't really made a major investment in the U.S. yet. But just looking at the market currently, I think in the U.S., miners can be much more innovative. In Asia, we always try to look for the cheapest form of electricity that is stable and just cheap. But in U.S., we started to see a lot more different type of mining activities and different type of energy utilization, such as we have seen miners purchase old aluminum factories and turn them into a mining farm. We have seen miners using associated gas, which, again, is like a form of gas that is produced through oil drilling. And in the past, this type of gas is wasted and or flared, and which is very harmful for the environment. But now you can utilize that for Bitcoin mining. So through these, I think coming years, you will see more and more miners started to mining operation here in the U.S. Got it. Now that we have a good understanding of the macro landscape, you know, we talked about China, Russia, a little bit about the U.S. I think it'd be helpful now to talk more about the details around sourcing electricity. So what variables do you look for when you are going out there and finding cheap sources of electricity for your mining farms? Sure. So when we do our due diligence on deciding mining farm investments or acquisitions, the first few questions we ask are, uh, where is the location? What type of energy is it? What is the price, voltage, and capacity? 
the price of the electricity is one of the most crucial components in crypto mining. And the voltage oftentimes determines our potential cost of infrastructure investment. And we usually skip mining farms with lower than certain amount of capacity. In addition, uh, we also pay close attention to other important factors, such as current state of infrastructure at the energy site, local policy, uh, is the government supportive of mining, taxation policies, and the local compliance law. We also pay really great attention to our local partners' background. And of course, we always check the reliability of the energy companies. So during this sourcing process, there are a lot of things that must be put into the consideration. You know, we talk about Bixin operating a large mining facility. How do you guys manage security risks sort of on a mining farm level when you do have so many operations that are outside of regions within China that you can kind of just go and visit every day? Could you talk more on very high level on on how you manage this sort of operational risk for your different sites? On the operational side, we use three types of uh, risk control, digital, physical, and uh, system. On the digital risk control side, we obviously deploy a lot of uh, digital surveillance tools to these sites. And we also have a lot of physical security on sites. But in addition, we also have a really cutting edge technology that notify us even at our headquarter that if specific machine is having a malfunction, so we can notify our local employees to go check on them and fix them right away. Securing a mining farm at, at a large scale definitely takes a lot of investment and uh, experiences. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot I-O. Mustafa, can you recap for us what we saw during the halving that just happened on the 12th of May and how hash rate and price has responded in the last day or so? How do you think miners in the East and West are impacted uh, from the halving? So I think rainy season really helped out a lot of miners this year in China. Uh, last night, I was looking at the data showing that hash rate already dropped 15% post-halving. For miners, I think it's very important to utilize financial tools to minimize risks. Uh, namely, you can do things like hedging or uh, utilizing structural financial product, which I know Amber also offers. I think if it's not because of the rainy season, we could have seen a lot more machine probably getting shut down. Miners in China rely more on cheaper cost of the electricity versus I think in the West, people are trying to utilize more effective financial tools to reduce like their operational costs. So I think that is probably the major difference. 
That's actually very interesting. And speaking on the financialization of mining, Binance recently launched their own mining pool, which seems is primarily targeting miners on other Chinese exchange mining pools, such as Huobi and OKX. What is your view on the crypto exchanges coming into the game and launching their own mining pools? I think it makes a lot of sense, actually, for crypto exchange to enter the mining pool space. As we are beginning to actually see a lot of players, especially in Asia region, uh, such as Binance, Huobi, and OKEX uh, entering the space, I think to make a prediction, we will probably see a lot more exchanges entering the space soon. And when comparing to the traditional mining pool, crypto exchange don't probably care as much about making money through mining pool service because they make money through trading fees. And by attracting miners onto their platform, they can attract a lot more Bitcoin deposit and and their ability to generate more revenue long-term increase the sustainability of their platform. I think Exchange can offer also diverse set of financial tools, and it can really also help educate miners so they can start to utilize and increase their BTC holding and hedge against different variety of risks. It makes a lot of sense, as you mentioned, because of this business model, right? They're already so vertically integrated. These exchanges have large crypto reserves already. So why not get into the mining pool game if you already have this to your advantage, whether you be Pool B, OKX, or Binance, right? These are top exchanges in the world. But the critics are saying Binance Pool is only going to centralize hash rate distribution even more. But Binance, of course, claims that it will actually be a decentralizing force. What's your take there? Actually, we do believe that crypto mining should be more decentralized and will be more decentralized in the coming years. And that is largely because, you know, we've been seeing oversee a lot of electricity prices decreasing while the amount of people in regions such as North America has been increasing. I think that's partially due to, number one, regulatory framework. It is much more clear in a lot of places such as North America compared to Central Asia or China. And also, we've been seeing miners in the West paying much closer attention to new technologies such as immersion cooling, which can help increase efficiency uh, reduced noise and even help with greenhouse farming in the near future. And also, as we talked about earlier, the associated gas, flare gas mining have also been kind of a hot topic here in the US, which utilize waste gas from oil draining to mine Bitcoin. These forms of energies are effective, they're cheap. I think it really could have an incredible potential if utilized for box mining, which is BitFerry is famous for, because box mining can be transferable and it can be used on different oil side when utilizing this uh, waste gas energy consumption. And so taking all that in consideration, we will definitely see Bitcoin mining becoming more and more decentralized uh, around the globe. And also you need to take in mind the mentality, right? Because it is actually much easier for a person who is from North America, who is from Russia, who is from Central Asia, to mine locally. Just like the barrier we talked about earlier too, as a miner from China, it's very hard for us to establish company and uh, make large infrastructure investment in the US. There's just so much that you need to think about. And same as miners in New York, they're probably going to think twice before they go to Sichuan and decide to invest tens of millions into a mining infrastructure there. And so taking consideration of geopolitical 
and then the energy development, and then also the future of mining in related to utilizing waste energy, surplus energy, and even combining that to a mining farm. I truly do think that Bitcoin mining could be decentralized and should and will be decentralized in the near coming years. Yeah, that's very interesting. And thanks for bringing in that Asia minor perspective, kind of walking us through how you think about the entire process of mining from research and excavation, if you will, to actually, you know, setting up and taking us through the variables that you look at, and also your thoughts as well on the future trends as it relates to players that will be joining into the mining space. So really appreciate that. And now I want to move on to the part of our conversation where our listeners can get to know you a bit more. What important truth about the crypto space or mining more specifically do you believe in that few might agree with you on? I think this might also bring a lot of controversy to the table, but I do believe that despite mining will get more decentralized in the near future, you will see more centralization of mining farm operators. Um, an example for that is, let's say we started to see this utilization of uh, waste gas from oil drilling, uh, flare gas from oil drilling becoming more and more popular. The oil companies obviously probably doesn't want to understand mining Bitcoin or how to operate the system because they're probably already profitable with drilling oils and uh, they're happy by just not paying fee or becoming a break even on their investment in the infrastructure and you know happy to outsource that operating power to a third party if that specific industry could be potentially dominated by few players in the future same as box mining or flare gas or immersion cooling i think as we develop more and more into decentralization of bitcoin mining in the geo terms the actual operation and the management of those mining farms could become more and more centralized. Yeah, centralization doesn't necessarily mean geographical location. And and that is, I, I think, a common misconception that people have about the mining space. So yeah, thanks for teasing that out for us. And Mustafa, now it's time for a round of Rapid Fire Mining Edition. I'm going to ask you whether you're bullish or bearish, and you can expand if you wish on any topic you like. Awesome. You ready? Yeah. Bitcoin, bullish or bearish? Uh, bearish uh, short term, but bullish till end of the year. Hash rate market, bullish or bearish? Uh, bearish short term, bullish long term. To, to add on a little bit on the hash rate market, I think it's very interesting, but the actual adoption of the hash rate market, especially the derivative tools around hash rate market, the adoption probably will take longer than people expected. Is the hash rate secondary market big in China? I, I think we started to see development of hash rate secondary market, but it's more on the spot level right now. Uh, and also the liquidity is not good. The technology is out there, the market is out there, but not a lot of people using it at the moment. What is a development within the mining industry that has surprised you over this past year? So something that took me by surprise is the fast development of decentralization of mining in the in the geo terms. Like I said, we always believed in decentralization of mining and uh, and it should be decentralized, but I just didn't expect to see it to happen so fast because now we see a lot more miners in uh, North America, Central Asia, and Russia compared to before. Mm -hmm. And what excites you going forward about the crypto mining industry? 
I think the fact that the crypto mining industry can be used to consume electricity surplus or waste gas or flare gas to generate mining and help environment actually is something that is very exciting to me. And also, like, like we said, not just flare gas and the waste energy, I think the fact that it can also combine with the greenhouse in the future to help heat up these greenhouses during the winter time, it's really, really, truly exciting. Yeah, I agree. Well, Mustafa, it was so great chatting with you. Thanks so much for bringing in the Asia perspective and appreciate you coming on the Crypto Unsec podcast this week. Hope to have you on again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. And uh, it's been really fun. Thank you, Leslie. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes. And connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.